Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Question. Was Jesus racist? Did that get your attention? Was Jesus racist? Is it possible that Jesus of Nazareth, a a Jewish man from a Jewish family who grew up in Jewish context, could be prejudiced against non-Jewish people? Now, just to set your mind at ease, if you've been around City Church for very long at all, you probably know how we're going to answer this question, right? We believe that Jesus was the perfect, sinless Son of God, and we believe that racism, prejudice against certain people based solely on the color of their skin, is blatantly sinful. So you likely know where we're going to land on that question. But I bring up the question because our passage today, at least the first half of it that we just read, does at least raise that question in many modern people's minds, such that a few years back, there was actually a series of videos making the rounds online where seemingly bright, educated people made the case that this story is a story about how Jesus learned to overcome his racial prejudices. And as much as I disagree with their conclusion about this passage, I can at least understand how they arrived there. Because there's no doubt about it, verses 21 through 28 sound very odd to our modern ears. In the story, there's a Gentile, i.e. non-Jewish woman, approaching Jesus with a request for healing. And Jesus' response to her, at least at first, is silence. That seems weird. Then he makes this cryptic statement about how he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which at first glance at least looks like he's saying no to helping her on the basis of her ethnicity. And then he does this thing where he seems to refer to her or at least her people as dogs. So let's just call a spade a spade. This is an odd story, right? On first read, there seems to be so much about this passage that rubs against the portrait that so many of us have about who Jesus was. But I also think if we are willing to wade through some of the difficulty, if we're willing to think well about this passage, I think it has some important things to show us about the nature of the kingdom of God and the specifics of what Jesus calls faith. But all of that to say, we do have our work cut out for us this morning. So let's dive in, see what we can figure out together. Take a look with me. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. Leaving that place, in other words, the place where we had last week's interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. 
So Matthew starts out this story by telling us that Jesus moves on from a region that was primarily Jewish in ethnicity to a region that was primarily Gentile, the region of Tyre and Sidon. And that becomes the setting for his interaction with someone that Matthew refers to only as a Canaanite woman. Now, that's interesting language for Matthew to use because Canaanite was a term that at the time of this writing had mostly fallen out of usage. It wasn't a slur or anything like that, but it also wasn't the typical term used at this time to describe people from this region. The modern term would have been to call her a Syrophoenician woman. Matthew calling her a Canaanite woman calls our attention as the readers to the long, ugly history between the Jewish people and the Canaanite people. Long story short, the Canaanites throughout the scriptures were a group of people often given to sin and violence and injustice, including some really brutal things like child sacrifice. The Jewish people were God's people, But through the years, they were often caught up into the sin and violence and injustice of the Canaanites. So there is no love lost between these two groups of people at this time. I I realize that we've got our own divisions here in America right now, but to be honest, none of those divisions contain the amount of history and vitriol present between these two groups of people in the passage. No Jewish person would want anything to do with a Canaanite, and no Jewish person would ever think that a Canaanite would want anything to do with the God of Israel. But right off the bat, this woman in the story seems to defy all of those expectations of Canaanites. She calls Jesus, quote, Lord, son of David. Now, Lord was just a title of respect, but Son of David was a very specific title that recognized the true identity of Jesus, that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, which is interesting because thus far in Matthew's gospel, only a couple of people have recognized that about Jesus. The disciples only recently started thinking that way about Jesus, and they've been spending every waking hour with him. So people in general, and Jewish people specifically, at large, are still very unsure about Jesus' identity. But this Gentile woman evidently has complete confidence in who Jesus is. So already we notice that there's something incredibly unique about this woman and her view of Jesus, something that Jesus intends to draw out in their conversation. But nonetheless, verse 23, read with me there. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. So no doubt, silence is a very unusual response from Jesus. He doesn't really have a habit of giving people the silent treatment when they need something from him in the Gospels. In fact, three weeks ago, we read a story about how even in a moment of personal tragedy and exhaustion, Jesus still heals and feeds thousands of people. Jesus really, best we can tell, never turns away genuine, earnest people in their moment of need. But here, at least at first, he is silent. So much so that the disciples feel like they need to bring it up with him. They they bring it to Jesus' attention and they try to get him to send the woman away. Now notice what the disciples don't say. They don't say, Jesus, do you hear this woman? 
You should heal her daughter like she asked. They just asked Jesus to send her away. And you'll note this is not the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the disciples want to send someone away because they consider them burdens. That's happened over and over again in the storyline. But Jesus chooses not to send this woman away. Instead, he delivers this line, verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, so what does Jesus mean by this statement? Well, maybe let's start with one thing he can't mean. He cannot mean when he says that, sorry, I don't heal or help non-Jewish people. It can't mean that because he has already, in the Gospel of Matthew, healed and helped multiple non-Jewish people. And he'll continue to do that. So whatever he is saying, he can't be saying that or else he has already broken his own rule. So what does he mean by this statement? Well, what's interesting to me about this statement from Jesus is that while it certainly isn't a yes to the woman's request, it also isn't exactly a no. It's kind of like this. So my six-year-old son asked me every single night without fail if he can have dessert before he's finished any of his dinner. Every single night. It's a, it's a nightly conversation at the Bateman house. And usually I respond by saying, you have to finish dinner to get dessert. Now, that's not exactly a yes, because I'm telling him he can't have dessert. But it's also not exactly a no, because I'm making him an implicit guarantee that if and when he does finish his dinner, he can have dessert, right? So it's not exactly a yes or a no, it's a statement about how things work that applies to his question. Does that make sense? Okay, I think that's pretty similar to what Jesus is doing in the passage. He offers a statement that applies to the woman's question. And specifically, it's a statement that invites further conversation and interaction from the woman. If he would have just said, no, I will not help you, I will not heal your daughter, then the conversation is over, right? But the way he puts it, it at least, it at least leaves the door open for her to respond to what he said, which she does. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. So notice the persistence that she models. She runs ahead and she kneels in front of Jesus and the disciples such that they will have to walk around her to keep going about their way. Lord, help me, she said. She simply will not take no for an answer. So take a look at Jesus' response, verse 26. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So let's just be honest, this is likely the most difficult part of the passage for us to get on board with as modern Americans. Jesus responds like he often responds to people with a sort of parable related to the woman's request. And in the parable, Jesus appears to refer to the woman, or at least to Gentiles in general, as dogs. So some clarifications are in order here. First, I think we have to remember that this parable is just that. It's a parable. So even if it still seems like odd language to us, a parable is a little bit different than him just saying to this woman, get out of here, you dog, right? 
A parable is a little bit different than that. There is room for language like this within the framework of an illustrative story. So, for example, uh, let's say that you and I are co-workers somewhere here in Knoxville, and you and I are debating whether it's more important for us to work patiently and deliberately or whether it's more important for us to work quickly and efficiently. In that conversation, I might bring up the well-known illustration, the well-known parable of the tortoise and the hare, right? And you could respond to me telling that story by saying, excuse me, are you saying we're nothing but animals, you racist? You could respond that way. And I would have to tell you, hey, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're nothing more than animals. I'm illustrating a point by way of a story that contains animals. Jesus, with his statement, is also trying to illustrate a principle. Second, and I think this one's really important, I think it's worth noting that Jesus does not abide by our modern unwritten rules of outrage culture, nor should he. We talked at length about this last Sunday, but you and I live in a society that loves to be offended by everything all of the time, whether or not there's actually something to be offended by. Jesus simply refuses to play by those rules. And what's more, he seems to operate in his conversations with people with a sort of good faith understanding. He assumes that the other person is willing to try to understand him and he tries to understand the other person. Now, I would argue that that characteristic of Jesus is something that we could stand to learn from in our day and age and not, say, be offended by, right? And along those lines, I do think you need to point out in this story, the woman actually doesn't get offended. She simply continues the conversation with Jesus. So, Let's not be so arrogant as modern Americans to lecture other people from other societies on what they should be offended by, as if we are the authorities on their lives and their experiences. Is that fair? Now, with all of that said, before we continue in the story, this feels like a good time to remind you that present for this whole interaction with the Canaanite woman are at least 12 Jewish male disciples who likely are given to prejudiced attitudes towards non-Jewish people and sexist attitudes towards women. On several occasions in the Gospels so far, they actually make those prejudices known to Jesus and to other people. And in fact, they've already asked Jesus to send this woman away because she's bothering them with her request. So here's my question for us, as it relates to understanding what's happening in this passage. Is it possible that this interaction happens as much for the benefit of the disciples as it does for the woman and her daughter? Is it possible that Jesus interacts with this woman the way that he does because he wants to show the disciples something that they are radically misunderstanding about his kingdom? I would argue that's very possible. And more, it would be very consistent with Jesus' M.O. for him to do that. Jesus, on several occasions, wants to show the people around him that his kingdom is not limited to the nation of Israel. Sometimes he just comes out and says that outright, but often it doesn't seem like his disciples are getting the message when he does that. 
So in this particular story, it seems like Jesus would rather show that reality to the disciples than he would tell them. Instead of telling them that faith is possible for Gentiles, he wants the woman's actions to demonstrate to the disciples that it's possible. He senses that she has the faith and the understanding to demonstrate that to them, and he is using this dialogue with her to draw it out, which is exactly what happens next. So remember, Jesus has just told the parable about how it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She replies, verse 27, yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She accepts Jesus's parable, but then she challenges its conclusion from within, which elicits this response from Jesus, verse 28, then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So Jesus has a regular habit of doing this in the Gospels. He would regularly hold up non-Jewish people as examples of faith in contrast to the skepticism and doubt of many Jewish people. He would marvel, usually in front of Israelites, at the incredible faith of non-Israelites. And here, he does it again. He's trying to get the disciples to see that their categories for the kingdom of God are too small that the people they consider least able to understand the kingdom are sometimes the ones most in tune with it, sometimes more than the disciples themselves. The kingdom is available to more than just them and their people. It's available to all. And then Matthew gives us a second story right after this one that confirms all of this about the first one. So we'll move through this one pretty quickly. Verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. It's a slightly different place, but still in Gentile territory. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Thirty great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Remember that phrase for later. Verse 32 Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Now, at this point in the story, things should start to sound a little bit familiar to us if we've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 33, his disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Verse 34, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And then he took the seven loaves and the fish. When he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Verse 38, the number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Now, if this part of the passage sounds like something we've already read in the Gospel of Matthew, that's because it basically is. 
It reads almost identically to the story that we read three weeks ago here on Sundays in Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Matthew has intentionally structured these two stories to mirror each other. But that said, they're not identical stories. It's not like Matthew just forgot that he already told us a story like this and brought it up again. They're not the same story. There's some key differences. First, there's a difference in the number of people and the amount of food. Those are slightly different in this story. Second, and this one is really just because I find it funny, uh, Jesus' interaction with the disciples is different. If you remember back in Matthew 14, the disciples come to Jesus and say that he needs to send the crowds away because there's not enough food to feed all of them. Jesus then has to show them that there is enough food because he can use whatever they've got to feed the thousands of people. But here in Matthew 15, the interaction with the disciples reads a little bit different. Here it says that Jesus initiates the conversation with the disciples. And in the conversation, he tries his absolute hardest to help them see that they are in precisely the same situation as a week ago. He really tries. Like he uses even the same language to describe the situation. So he brings all the disciples in and he has this, what reads to me, almost like a kindergarten teacher-esque moment with them. He brings them all in and he says, okay guys, let's recap the situation here. There are thousands of people, kind of like there were thousands of people a week ago. I have compassion on these people, just like I had compassion on the people a week ago. They all need to eat, just like the people did a week ago. And I don't want to send them away hungry, just like I didn't want to send them away a week ago. So does this situation sound familiar to any of you guys? It, does anybody have any ideas on what we might be able to do to feed thousands of people? Does this feel familiar to any of you? That's the question Jesus asked. Like he is trying so hard to set them up for success, but do they see it? Not even a little bit. Do they, they, they literally say, yeah, 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 we hear you, Jesus, we get the situation, but where are we going to get enough food for all of these people. I don't know if Jesus ever facepalmed, but this would be the moment for it, right here, right? I mean, this is, Jesus has literally put the ball on the tee for them, he squared them up to it and handed them a bat, and then they ran and threw the bat away. Like, this is the most painful moment to witness as it relates to Jesus showing his disciples what the kingdom is like. Do you see the almost comedic failure of the disciples in this moment? But the ever-patient, ever-kind Jesus just takes it in stride and he says to them, okay, how many loaves do you have? And he feeds the crowds once again with just a small amount of food. That's the second difference between this passage and Matthew 14. But the final difference between the two stories is arguably the most important one for us to realize. And it's this, the type of people that make up the crowd on this particular day in Matthew 15. Back at the end of verse 31, as we read through that part of the passage, it says that when Jesus healed the crowds, 
they responded by praising the God of Israel. Now, why would Matthew need to say which God they praised? We've pretty much only been talking about one God in the Gospel of Matthew so far, right? Why would he need to say it was the God of Israel? Because it's not Israelites who are praising him. It's Gentiles. The people Jesus healed and fed in Matthew 14 were Jewish people. The people here in this passage are Gentiles. In Matthew 14, the point was that Jesus was the bread of life for Jewish people. Here, Jesus is trying to show the disciples that he is the bread of life for everyone else too. And I want you to think about that reality in the greater context of this entire passage. So Jesus just told a parable in the first half of the passage to a Gentile woman about bread, right? And her response was that even dogs, i.e. Gentiles in the parable, eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then here in the second half of the passage, Jesus confirms that belief by feeding thousands of Gentile people with breadcrumbs. Do you see the connection? Jesus is fulfilling the Canaanites' woman interpretation of the parable. He is the bread of life for everyone, everywhere, just like she said that he was. So with all of that unpacked, let's spend just a little bit of time doing what we usually do. With a little bit of time we have left, let's ask what this story has to say to you and I here in the 21st century. We probably aren't as wrapped up in the Jewish Canaanite controversy as Jesus and his disciples were. So what does this text mean for us? We've got just a couple for us to consider. I think in this story, we learn about at least two things. First, we learn about the breadth of God's kingdom. The breadth of God's kingdom. So both of these stories point directly to how broad the availability of God's kingdom truly is. Jew and Gentile, male and female, everyone, everywhere can be welcomed into the kingdom of God, regardless of their heritage, their past, their ethnicity, their gender. The kingdom of God is for all and available to all. And while that may not seem like that groundbreaking of a statement for us today, it absolutely was in Jesus' day. It would have come as a bit of a shock to Jews and to Gentiles alike, male and female alike. In fact, that's kind of the point of the first half of the passage. The disciples saw this woman as nothing more than an annoyance, while Jesus sees her as an example of faith for them to learn from. And I think part of the reason that this idea doesn't strike us as groundbreaking is because it aligns so much with our existing cultural values. So inclusivity is a virtue in nearly all corners of our society today. So when we see Jesus interacting with people from all backgrounds and all walks of life, it reads to us today as normal and appropriate rather than shocking and offensive but it wouldn't have seemed normal in Jesus' day, not at all. There is a reason that the disciples and others are constantly trying to lecture Jesus on who he should and shouldn't hang out around. Just as a thought experiment, imagine that you walk up to Market Square one day and there at one of the public tables is Jesus of Nazareth 
probably eating a burger from Stock and Barrel, just if I had to guess. <laughs> because it's the best restaurant in Knoxville. Hopefully you guys caught that. Jesus of Nazareth enjoying a Stock and Barrel burger there at one of the public tables on Market Square. And let's say that he's sitting at that table with, I don't know, five to ten other people. And, and once you do a little more investigating, you find out that the people Jesus is there sharing a meal with are some combination of convicted criminals, known sex offenders, pedophiles, and, I don't know, members of the Proud Boys. And Jesus is just sharing a meal with them, catching up on life, laughing, getting to know them. How would that make you feel? Okay, now we're at least a lot closer to how you likely would have responded to Jesus in his day if you would have come around him. You likely would not have thought to yourself, wow, I love how inclusive and accepting Jesus is. I always knew he was like that. You would have thought, uh, Jesus, that's not how you do that. That's not okay. You, you can't just hang out with people like that. People are going to get the wrong idea. And maybe in response to that, you're thinking, well, no, it's just that by Jesus hanging out with those types of people, people might get the wrong idea and assume that Jesus approved of and condoned their behavior, which he doesn't. That's why I would be uncomfortable with Jesus hanging out with those people. But then you realize that's exactly what made people uncomfortable around Jesus back then, too. So here's my point. God's kingdom casts a wide net. The edges of the invitation to God's kingdom are further out than most of us would prefer to believe, which means chances are it includes quite a few people that we would not naturally want included. Jesus does not overlook any person's sin, but his life, death, and resurrection have made a way for anyone who trusts in him and forsakes their sin to be invited into his kingdom, regardless of who they are or what they've done. And when we pretend as if there is something more than that required to be a part of God's kingdom, like there are more roadblocks than that to enter in, we end up looking a lot like the disciples who want to send people away, people that Jesus wants to welcome in. Jesus does not need us to tell him who he's allowed to include and who he isn't. The invitation to his kingdom is as wide as the sky. Following Jesus is narrow, to be sure, but the invitation to his kingdom is broad. And I'll say, just before we move on from this one, um, it is one thing to believe all of that about Jesus. It's entirely another thing to follow Jesus into that posture. It's quite another thing to live a life where you seek out and welcome and invite in the people who are most unlike you. Those who you are most inclined to write off or exclude or bare minimum just avoid in group settings. It's one thing to believe that God would befriend the difficult person at your work. It's another thing for you to befriend them. It's one thing to believe that God would pursue the person in your life group who has a very different background, a very different life stage, a very different ethnicity than you. It's another thing for you to pursue friendship with that person despite all of that. 
But if we are followers of Jesus, the scriptures would call us to, quote, welcome others as Christ welcomed us, to follow him into all of that as a testament to the breadth of God's kingdom. That's the first thing I think this passage is about. The second, in this passage, we also learn about the persistence of faith. The persistence of faith. At the core of our passage today is the story of a Canaanite woman who simply would not go away. There were racial barriers discouraging her from even approaching Jesus in the first place, but she persisted. There were disciples who didn't want her bothering them or Jesus, but she persevered. She's even met initially with what seemed like reluctance from Jesus himself, but she persisted. She is the woman who wouldn't go away. And whatever you do, do not miss what Jesus calls that persistence in the passage. He uses one word to describe it. Anybody know what it is? Faith. He calls that persistence in her faith. His response is to say in front of the disciples and anyone else who happens to be listening, woman, you have great faith. And no doubt that description, great faith, is chosen in deliberate contrast to the two chapters on either side of this story where Jesus calls his disciples those of little faith. Jesus is trying to use this interaction with a Canaanite woman to call his disciples into something bigger and better than where they currently are in their relationship to him. He wants them, too, to marvel at and then imitate this woman's faith. So faith is evidently modeled sometimes by persistence. Reminds me of another time in the Gospels where Jesus makes the exact same point in regards to prayer. He tells the disciples a story in the Gospel of Luke about how they should, quote, always pray and not give up. And the story that he chooses to tell to illustrate that is the story of a persistent widow. A woman who's being taken advantage of financially and legally, and her response was that she would not stop going to the judge and insisting that he give her justice. Day by day, night by night, she simply would not give up. She would not go away. These are the types of stories that, for Jesus, exemplify what faith truly is. Which is interesting to me because I think sometimes we tend to envision faith as sort of this silent resolve about life. The the ability to withstand difficult scenarios with just a subtle smile on our face and, and a quiet optimism in our voice. And sometimes, to be sure, that's what faith looks like. But evidently, the type of faith that Jesus marvels at sometimes looks a lot more like outspoken, stubborn persistence. Like coming to God with a request and refusing to take no for an answer. It looks like praying for the same thing over and over and over again until it happens. It looks like going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I have a problem that only you can solve. I have a person that only you can heal. I have an issue that only you can address. And I'm asking and I'm going to keep asking that you do it. Now, there are unhealthy ways to do that, to be sure. 
We can go about it in arrogant ways where we refuse to accept that God may see things differently than we do. There's a way to view Jesus simply as a personal genie, someone who exists primarily just to fulfill your every wish. But notice, that's not what the Canaanite woman is doing in this passage at all. She starts with a recognition of who Jesus is and of his authority, calling him Lord and son of David. And she's not coming to him asking for a nicer house or a cooler car or a little extra cash for spending. She is pleading for the healing and restoration of her daughter. I think all of that shapes why Jesus calls her actions faith and not arrogance or selfishness. But still, don't let any of that soften the audacity of her actions in this passage. She is approaching a man who society told her not to approach and choosing to enter into dialogue with him when all cultural conventions would tell her not to do any of that. She is approaching the Messiah, the Son of God, and having the boldness not just to ask but insist that he meet her need. That, to many of us, feels like overreaching, doesn't it? That feels presumptive on her part. But to her and to Jesus, it wasn't presumptive at all. It was an expression of faith, of trust in the type of person that Jesus was and the types of things that he was capable of. I wonder what would happen if we approached Jesus like this. I don't know about you guys, I have a hard time praying for really anything persistently. I have a tendency to ask God for something once or maybe twice, and if it doesn't happen, I just assume that he's not interested in doing whatever thing it is. I really think if I was around back then, I think I would be one of those people that Jesus refers to as those of little faith. And that's not to say that Jesus doesn't love me or doesn't care about me. Jesus showed tremendous love and tremendous patience and understanding to his disciples, he used them to do incredible things over and over again. But still, time and time again, he called them those of little faith. And then he used examples of great faith to call them up into something better. And I wonder if this morning, Jesus doesn't want to call many of us with little faith into great faith. I wonder if he wants to teach us much like the way that he taught the disciples through the example of a woman who wouldn't go away. So let me just tell you as we wrap up here where this type of faith comes from, where it originates. I think this type of persistent faith starts exactly where it started for the Canaanite woman in her understanding of who Jesus was. Her motivation for approaching Jesus wasn't her experiences, it wasn't her circumstances, it wasn't what prayers had or hadn't been answered for her in the past, and it certainly wasn't in who she was or in her standing within society. She was asking Jesus because she knew who Jesus was, Lord, Son of David, the Messiah. She asked Jesus because she knew Jesus. And because she knew Jesus, she could not fathom a scenario where he would not hear her. 
She asked Jesus because she couldn't fathom a circumstance in which Jesus would not want to help. She threw herself on the character and the trustworthiness of God and would not let go until he did what he was capable of doing. That's what faith looks like. She said in her heart with the psalmist in chapter 27, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is where persistence comes from. That is where faith comes from. Not I might see the goodness of the Lord. Not I hope that I'll see the goodness of the Lord. Not maybe I'll see the goodness of the Lord. None of that. I will see the goodness of the Lord, because I know who he is. It might not look like what I thought it would look like. It might not feel like I want it to feel. But I know who Jesus is, and I know what he's capable of. May God grant each one of us such great faith. I just feel compelled to ask for for each of us in this room, everybody listening online, all of that, um, just one question. Um, what have you given up praying about? What have you just bailed on? Where have you decided in your heart? Now, Jesus doesn't care about that. He doesn't want to help with that. I just think of Jesus' example to his disciples that he wants them to always pray and, and not lose heart in prayer. And I just wonder... Are there some things that we've lost heart in? That we've just decided God has no interest in helping with. So I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if it's a personal struggle or addiction. Maybe it's the struggle or addiction of a family member. Maybe it's, maybe it's the relationship with a parent or, or with a child. Um, maybe there's just something that you've just said, you know what, I've, I've already asked God to do something about that and, and nothing happened. And, and so I just, I've given up um, praying about it. And, and I wonder if maybe this morning persisting in faith would look like just going, God, you do care about this, and so I'm going to keep asking. And I'm going to listen as I ask. I'm not going to presume that I know exactly what's best in every scenario. I'm going to listen for ways that you might want to answer it in a different sort of way, in ways that your understanding of things might be higher and fuller than my understanding, but I'm not going to stop asking because I know you care about me and I know you care about the other person I know you care about whatever it is. And so I, I just want to give you a second. Um, maybe if there's something like that in, in your life, in your heart, 
I want to just give you a second to maybe resume praying about that. To remind yourself that God does care. Let's just take a moment and then I'll close this out. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your trustworthiness. God, thank you that through the cross, you've made each and every one of us uh, your kids. Father, we thank you that you're a good father. So God, if, if there are things this morning that we just feel like you're putting on our heart, you're putting on our mind that we need to remember that we need to realize that we need to remind ourselves of God would you help us not to resist it would you help us to open our hearts open our minds to listen to you and what you have to say God we thank you that you are a living speaking God and that you speak if we're willing to slow down enough to listen so God would you help us to hear would you help us to hear well in your name.